This is Fundraising Radio, and today as a guest speaker, we have Zanetta Berger, the head of operations at Community.com, scout for Mucker Capital and venture partner at Social Venture Partners. And since Zanetta has such a wide background, and also she moved to Los Angeles just a few years ago, where first part of this episode is going to be focused on networking. So how do you grow your network in a completely new city in terms of uh, finding potential partners, uh, join the uh, venture capitals, etc. And the second part is going to be, of course, on fundraising, actually. So uh, Zanetta will tell us about marker capital investment strategies, how she personally prefers to invest, etc. So Zanetta, I'll ask you off by you giving us some background on yourself, on marker capital, on community.com, and a little bit about social venture partners. Sure. Hi. Nice to nice to be here. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I moved to LA three years ago. Prior to that, I was living in Sydney, Australia, but I'm I'm actually South African born. Um, my background is in M and A, um, mergers and acquisitions, <clears throat> that then filtered through to the startup world, and then I moved to LA and joined a corporate. Uh, VC team for Trinet, which is a service provider in the technology space. Um, since then, you know, I met a lot of VCs around town, uh, one of which was Noah Hiller of Three Rodeo. And when community.com was exploding, I decided to join the team to um, help them scale significantly. Um, so that's been that part of the journey. Macro Capital is a early stage fund here in town um, that's done very, very well. They've been around for 12 years and invest mostly in any um, enterprise software. But that's maybe 80% of the portfolio. We're actually uh, industry agnostic. Uh, we're mostly, our strategy is to focus outside of the Bay Area and um, invest in underrepresented founders. Um, and Social Venture Partners is a society here in LA that elevates not-for-profit startups. So if you're a company in the um, philanthropic space, I would, or requiring philanthropic capital, I would get in touch with them. They um, certainly help those companies scale. Mm-hmm. Got it. So before we move into... Uh, deeper discussion of market capital and social venture partners, I would actually like to start with networking as planned. So uh, I myself, when I just started uh, doing, you know, some stuff at Startup World, I was, you know, since the very beginning, I was trying to find this, you know, closed club where you can, uh, you know, hang out with investors and all that stuff. But does that sort of club actually exist? Do you go to those, you know, closed parties just for investors? Does that thing even exist in this world or is it you know, only in the movies? <laughs> I mean, I think it's uh, it's two things. First of all, LA is a very open tech ecosystem. So folks are always welcoming entrepreneurs of all, all kinds to network with them. And I, and I haven't experienced VCs here being um, unfriendly or unwelcoming. Um, I would say, you know, there are some events that the venture folks have within their own networks, mostly because it's them rewarding people who have sent them deals or um, potentially throwing events for their existing portfolio. So that may seem like a closed club, but it's more so just 
um, reward and recognition based on their strategy. Um, you know, I moved here, as you said, three years ago, didn't know anyone in the tech space here. But a good way to get to know folks is through service providers. So there's a bunch of lawyers, uh, accountants, uh, real estate folks, and, you know, PEO service providers that constantly host events and parties to bring together investors, founders, people hoping to break into um, investing or into startups. And I would get to know those people because they're constantly, you know, providing high value. And, and as you meet one or two or three or four more people, it, it opens your network very quickly here in a city that's so friendly. Um, yeah, I think the only other thing I would note is as you attend those events, um, having a clear idea of what you want to get out of it is, is a good starting point. So setting up coffees with people then and there, um, to catch up one-on-one -on -one <clears throat> is a good way to do that. It's also going in with a, you know, a statement, which is, you know, I'm looking to break into a startup or I'm looking to meet with investors, then folks know how they can help you and that services your needs right yeah i think that's that's really good advice one of my previous speakers was saying the same thing uh nick adams from new york he was saying that he, he's always going to those events having one thought in his mind i have to have two meaningful conversations and then and i just leave after that and right. however long it took him he always got those two meaningful conversations and then he left either it was 15 minutes or you know, two hours so i think that's that's a really important strategy but you mentioned that uh, during those, you know, small meetings uh, with service providers like accountants, lawyers, etc. Where do you find those? Where, where, where would you recommend founders to look for those? Um, I mean, I guess Eventbrite's a great place to start. Um, they frequently publish events there publicly. Um, or, you know, as you find public events on the internet, you know, in... Um, I forget the name, but sort of startup grind type locations. Once you go in with a mission, meet a few people who do that frequently, just ask to be invited to anything that they see that comes up that's interesting. Um, you'll be su surprised how quickly that circle expands and um, how meaningful your network can grow very quickly. Right, absolutely. And first of all, I apologizing for my background noise there is a construction work right outside of my window so i can't <laughs> isn't that always the case but here we're moving on to the most relevant part of our podcast to the, to the whole podcast theme which is fundraising so you explicitly mentioned that market capital does not invest in bay area why is that um we don't have anything against the bay area um our philosophy is just that there's plenty of capital there already. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, plenty of VCs with sharp elbows uh, competing for good deals. <laughs> so we prefer to invest in areas that are maybe overlooked um, and find those diamonds in the rough. Um, and it's been successful thus far. Right, right. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Los Angeles is not so crowded yet. And you know, it has the name of Silicon Beach for a good reason, because it's growing. Hopefully one day it's going to turn into something similar to Silicon Valley, but we'll see. Uh, we're yeah, here to help accelerate that process, hopefully. <laughs> so, that's uh, right. 
how do you source your deals? Where do you find those uh, diamonds, as you said? It's through various sources and I can attest to Eric and Will, the partners at Muckers, um, hard work that they've put in over the last 12 years of really building a brand and a footprint here so that a lot of deals are inbound. Um, we get them through a lot of other existing VCs that we frequently um, invest alongside. That's one source. Um, mm. We also get it through the service providers. So we have great relationships with the lawyers in the tech space, the um, real estate folks in the tech space, and um, you know, like I mentioned, Trinet and other PEO service providers who send us an array of deals. Um, we also have venture partners out there. Um, other founders is a huge source of deal flow, um, as they know people who have either left their companies to go on to start something new or just within their networks. The universities are great too. There's some great incubators around town, <clears throat> like um, Expert Dojo and others that um, feed us their companies that have gone through their accelerator programs, things like Techstars and so on. So it comes through an array of sources. I would say there's a little bit of cold inbound, as in deals that reach us from founders who have found our email addresses. I would say that those are less successful or we, um, you know, they've, they've not met the first layer of screen, which is, has this founder found a way to get to us, um, which sounds conceited, but it isn't really. It just means you've um, done your homework and you know a warm intro does a, a lot for uh, getting a meeting. But, you know, on the odd occasion, we will have a deck sent to us on LinkedIn or directly to our email that that um, is interesting. And on the odd occasion, we've done those deals. Right, so uh, that does sound like a pretty frequent scheme of sourcing deals. But here I want to touch on to something that you mentioned, which is service providers as uh, people who connect you to the startups. How, how does this work? So for example, you know, uh, you know, a lawyer, a corporate lawyer who works a lot with startups, and then what happens? Well, I would say if you're founding a company and you're working with, well, you, you need a lawyer or you need a banker or you need um, a payroll provider, I would see what else they can do for you when you're vetting that option. And, and one of those things you should ask is what connections do you have to the investing world? Um, you know, the obvious ones like Cooley and Fenwick and so on have deep roots with investors across the country. And that should be a consideration when you're um, choosing that service provider because that having a, a direct into that network is, is really powerful, actually. Absolutely, yeah, it is. And here I want to ask you, do you think that choosing a, you know, an individual or a small firm as a service provider is better in those terms than choosing a bigger firm? Because, you know, I imagine that a bigger firm would just not do as many introductions as a, an individual could do? Or what do you think about that? Yeah, that may be the case. I mean, I think that's always um, <clears throat> the case in, in any walk of life. If you have someone who's hungry to help you, they're more likely to do so. But the big firms, I mean, if you can afford them is the first piece. Um, certainly, you know, do whatever they can to help you out. So I wouldn't say be deterred by um, some of the 
big name brand firms for that reason. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. And here I would like to touch on to your experience as a scout for Mocker Capital. So how exactly does this work? So I know Sequoia Capital uh, gives out, just basically gives their scouts uh, huge mo- amounts of money and it just basically lets them invest in whatever they want to. But how does it work at Mocker Capital? Well, our system is slightly different. Um, I'm more sort of viewed as a floating team member, perhaps like an outside salesperson. <laughs> um, so founders that I um, really connect with, um, I'm not screening thousands and thousands and thousands of deals as I would if it was my full-time job. I'm only finding true raw introductions from people I trust about founders. I think that would be really interesting. And so I am picky with the meetings that I take. And usually that results in, um, you know, a meaningful conversation that allows me to go to the partnership and really advocate for someone. Um, Having said that, you know, I do look at any kind of industry, any kind of founder. It's not, um, it's not, you know, uh, specific to a, you don't have to fit a certain mold. Got it. So uh, one of my previous episodes, we discovered or just covering explicitly uh, what do scouts do? So we'll not go much deeper in that, but I have just one, hopefully one last question about uh, you being a scout for market capital. So when you say that it allows you to go to the partnership and advocate for that company, how exactly does this work? Do you just uh, come to the partners and say that these guys are great? That's, that's how it works. <laughs> It's less so that um, I, I would feel uncomfortable putting a deal in front of the founders, in front of the partners, without having some context on what that founder is like. Um, given my name is then forever t- tied to that deal, so I want to get to know what grit this founder has, what their background is, what makes them tick. Why do we think that they could see through a business? Um, so it's you know I always like to have a meeting with someone and ask some poignant questions on their background and get a gut feel for whether they have what we think is that sort of X factor that um, founders need to really pull through what is a really, really difficult thing to build. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I'll do a little bit of homework on the market and I'm trying to understand truly how big that total addressable market is mm-hmm. and then make, make a case to the partners as to why we think this business belongs in the future why, what problem it's solving and what my thesis is as it, as it pertains to, um, you know, how these founders intend to solve this problem and and why we think it's a growing market. Right, right. Yeah, that does sound like a better answer than what I thought it was. <laughs> so thank <laughs> you for that. And here I would, I, I keep repeating here, I should stop that. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I wanted to ask you, about this gut feel. So you mentioned that you know you have to have this gut feel and then you make research. So how do you usually get this gut feel? Do you, uh, uh, what, what do you look at when you meet with a founder for the first time? I mean, um, clearly integrity is something that's super important as you're deciding to give someone capital. So um, if I meet with someone who I don't think is portraying the whole truth, that will obviously turn me off immediately. Um, But as it pertains to grit, you know, you can ascertain or understand a lot about someone just by hearing a bit about their background, how 
what's the what's the how far have they come in their life from where they started um what have they done to fight their way to wherever they are today um <clears throat> and a lot of those stories inform how much we think someone uh has what we call grit that's 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 a good answer that's a really good answer <laughs> so let's move on to talking a little bit more about market cap so and then we'll get back to you and your personal uh investment choices so how sure. does market capital acting right now so during the, this pandemic a uh, lot of uh, investment firms are you know seeing still but i've seen in los angeles specifically a lot of activity saying like hey we're supporting community here in la specifically uh apply right now for funding we are actually active does market capital do anything like that or is it waiting for the dust to settle no we're suddenly still very active we're fortunate that we have quite a lot of dry powder from our last fund um we intend to have a later stage series a fund um soon so mm -hmm. we're actively looking at deals from pre-seed right through to series a so three to five million dollar checks at the top end um we're certainly active we're certainly looking we're just doing so remotely and staying healthy and safe <laughs> the best thing we can do right now um of course in our individual pursuits we're um supporting our communities and so on but the very best thing we can do is support our companies so Absolutely. we're doubling down on our existing portfolios seeing where we can help um cleaning up the mess because it's a really hard time for a majority of companies right now Absolutely, yeah, you're right. So, how does how do you think the investment landscape changed? So, right now with this pandemic on, no one really knows what's going to happen after this stay-at-home order is over, and once the, mm -hmm. the virus is cured, you know, no one knows what's going to happen. So, do you think the investment thesis of market capital changed somehow, or do you see a shift in the investment types that market capital is doing, or uh, do you see that in other funds? I don't think that there would be a shift in our thesis per se. I think that this kind of crisis will open people's eyes to new opportunities and existing problems that were right in front of us this whole time, but no one was solving. Um, or there are some companies who have been grinding and looking for a foothold in the market, and this has um, shown their value. You know, um, Zoom is like a very obvious example of a company that was always doing really well and now people really see its value. Um, another example is a robotics company in town that was trying and trying and trying to sell into airlines um, so that they could, as soon as passengers disembark, send a little robot in that essentially sterilizes the whole plane with UV light. Mm. They never had a foothold in the market until now. So we're looking for those um interesting deals that have come out of this alongside our traditional thesis we're also um open uh, keeping our eyes open for founders who <clears throat> whose companies may go under through no fault of their own and um, just given the market and the landscape changed so quickly overnight um and th those founders may rinse and repeat try and start something else again early and have ideas about other problems they could solve and that kind of seasoned entrepreneur is someone we're always very interested in meeting because just it's that much easier to scale a team build the products um build the infrastructure once you've done it once before so i would just say you know our eyes are open to opportunities that's the first answer right. how the investment landscape has changed 
a lot of funds are gonna go under, unfortunately. Um, that's just the hard truth. You know, if 80% of your portfolio uh, collapses overnight, you don't have returns for your investors. And those investors just saw a huge hit in the public markets for the most part. I'm talking about LPs who invest in venture funds. And they may not choose to reinvest in your fund if you've not shown a return. And unfortunately, these are just the times we're in. A lot of companies are gonna fail. The trickle on effect is gonna be significant. Um, and that is gonna change the landscape. I think LA will go back to a place with only a handful of prestigious funds and a few ancillary seed stage funds. Um, and we'll have to build up again. You have a dark vision of the future. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's dark, but I think it's the reality. And in, in, uh, in times like that, you know, opportunity exists too. So, sure. yeah. I hope, I hope it's going to be better, but here, and I said here again, oh my God. But I want to do something <laughs> that I rarely do, which is go off topic and ask just one quick question. Why do you like Zoom so much? I personally don't understand. <laughs> like, oh, Zoom is great. Zoom is wonderful. I hate it so much because, look, there's Google Hangouts right there. We're using Google Hangouts right now. Why? <laughs> where you have you know you click the link then you go to an app that you have to install prior to that and there the design is horrible i don't understand it how is it better than google hangouts can you like elaborate <laughs> that? Well, pitch. oh i mean personally i like that i have a personal zoom id that i can just copy and paste to anyone and then jump on a call through slack through text through anything um the second it is it just seems to be you know it's this chicken and egg problem it's wide adoption so it's easy to <laughs> not have someone have to download a new software or relink something most people have it now um the third is you know their infrastructure has shown that it can hold up through scale you know you can have thousands of people on a call if you have the right membership um and it holds up so there's a trust they've built there with their brand so i'd say those are maybe the three answers i, I don't actually have a personal preference other than whatever's easiest for the person who's on the other side of the line. And that's exactly why we're using Google Hangouts because I do have personal preference. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Google, if you're so just, you know, take, take a note of that. Anyways, <laughs> let's move on to the, uh, to the actual part of uh, this episode, <laughs> which is we'll slowly move towards wrapping it up. And, what do you think are the first three steps that a founder should take to get this you know, first check from an investor? The first three steps, assuming they have um, a viable product. Um, yeah, but no I mean, traction yet. No traction, yeah. I mean, I think the very first thing any founder should do before you leave your other job, um, before you do anything else, is really ask yourself, the problem that you're like, what is the problem that you're solving? Um, without a need in the market, it's very hard to be successful. There are companies that have created new markets or um, connected people in ways they didn't know they needed. Um, but ultimately, you know, where there is a void, there's opportunities. So really ask yourself, you know, what is the problem you're solving? The second is, am I the right person to solve it? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. self-awareness is something we really look for in a founder. Um, not only because 
you know, when you play to your strengths in a market, we hope to see a founder who can take coaching well and surround themselves with people that have skills that they're lacking. Um, but ask yourself the question, are you the right person to be solving this problem? Do you have the network that can support you or do you have the grit that can push through the walls? It's a very, very hard journey as a founder. So I would start by just asking myself that question. That's maybe the, the number one. The second is, you know, understand the market and go out there and see how big it truly is. Um, so, you know, the venture capital model means we have to make money for our investors. So not every business that is going to be successful and make a lot of money is necessarily a fit for a venture capital business. Uh, and that's something that founders sometimes miss as well because we need to see outsized returns. <clears throat> That's why people have invested in us. They're, they're looking for an investment category that um, can you know, surpass the standard indexes. So that's the second question I would ask is why venture capital? Why use that function and that facility for, for fundraising? Because you're giving away a lot of your business um you also have to answer to folks like us who then want to have a say in how you run your business um so it's more about asking yourselves those real questions the third i've sort of alluded to before surround yourself with a really strong team of people that complement your your skill set you know we frequently see founders who get along with someone very well who is a very similar makeup to them they're good um, hustlers or good business development people or good at branding, but they don't have a technical skill. So I would, you know, we love investing in teams. Um, you know, it's definitely strong founders at the helm, but people around them that support where they're weak. Um, so pair yourself with someone or with a bunch of people who complement your skill sets. And that's a great set of advice. And by the way, speaking of alternative sources of capital, and I, I mean, deciding if you actually need to fund yourself through a VC, because as you said, that it's it's not always the best option. And on this podcast, I like to emphasize that VC is not really the only option. And even angel investing is not the second option. Uh, mm -hmm. If you want to check more on that, go to fundraisingradio.com. And there is actually a series of episodes on alternative sources of capital. So there is a whole uh, a whole bunch of those episodes. So if you want to make sure that VC is for you, first check out the alternative sources of capital, all right? And let's move to the last question of this episode, which is, I started doing this small call to action thing for my listeners. So when this episode is over, once you know we say goodbye, thank you, what's that one thing that you want the listener to do and take into account the fact that most of my listeners are startup founders and most of those startup founders are actually first-time entrepreneurs. So what's that one specific thing that you want them to do as soon as this episode is over? Sure. I mean, I can tell a little story that will uh, facilitate what I mean. Um, a friend of mine ha was raising you know, a significant round of funding, $5 million. And he had three of the five locked up and there was one guy who was going to come in for $2 million and he was in love with the idea, in love with the product, in love with the founder. Um, and they had a meeting where he was doing his last diligence questions and sort of peppering him for the last finishing 
you know, to cross the line and understand the business fully. And at the end, he said, you know, thank you so much for your time, but uh, I'm not going to be investing. And my friend was totally floored and didn't understand why. And he was so close to the finish line on everything. This was going to be uh-huh. the final nail in the coffin. Well, not, no, wrong analogy. <laughs> the, the, final, <laughs> the final piece of the success story. And um, the guy said, well, I asked you all these questions and you didn't once say, I don't know. Um, and it's something we see so frequently with founders where um, what we're looking for is self-awareness. You're allowed to say you don't know. Um, we encourage it. Um, it shows us that you don't try and know everything and um, understand everything fully. You know, we, no one can understand everything fully, but your, your intent is to go out there and find the right answers, the right people to support you to to be able to answer the questions correctly or build the business correctly. So I think self-awareness is <clears throat> the number one key takeaway for anyone wanting to be a founder. Know where your weaknesses are because it's only going to end up being to your benefit because then you find the people who can support you in the areas that you're not good at. Um, mm. That would be my one key, key takeaway. That's such a sad story to end an episode up with it. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a really good story. I really like it. Probably this episode will hold a name, something like, I don't know. <laughs> so that was, that was a good takeaway. I think that's a great uh, showcase of how you know, things can go wrong uh, in just you know, a couple of minutes. So thanks thanks for that. Even though this episode got pretty dark a couple of times. I, <laughs> Sorry. We're getting realistic here. So thanks a lot, Zanetta, for coming out, for taking your time uh, and for participating on Fundraising Radio. Tons of I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sorry for being dark.